0: Welcome back to the Comic Book Historians podcast with Alex Grant and Jim Thompson. Today we have a very special guest, Mr. Roy Thomas. Um, Roy, uh, Roy and I have actually been in a couple of the same uh, documentaries and uh, another project that I uh, can't talk about but will be released next month. Roy, thanks so much for joining us today. Sure, happy to. First, I want to say thanks, John Cimino, for setting up the interview. We got about six questions we'd love to get through over the next uh, 30 minutes, which uh, which you have in your day today. Sure. All right. The first question, which I'm going to give a little setup for, that uh, Roy Thomas started uh, in the fanzines and uh, in fandom uh, in the early 60s with uh, his cohort, uh, Jerry Bales. He was a teacher in the mid-60s, left to go to New York uh, to uh, write comics, worked with uh, Mort Weisinger over at DC, the Superman comics editor, for a couple weeks. Then went over to Marvel and worked with Stan Lee, where his uh, legacy in, uh, in comics writing began. Roy, can you tell us uh, kind of w- uh, why you left? the Weisinger um, purview over for Stanley and what about the working with Stanley in the 60s? Did you find more interesting? Yeah, well,
1: Weisinger, uh, was, you know, a talented guy, but, uh, as I discovered when I got there, uh, was just very, very difficult to, to, uh, to work for. He, he liked to, he was just one of these people, uh, that who liked to browbeat, you know, he browbeat his artists. he browbeat his, uh, his writers and he browdied his assistants and so forth and I was just the latest uh, in the line uh, he, and I don't know I, I guess I could have survived working for him but I just I, I've i never reacted too well to these overbearing personalities I think just because they're the boss you know they get to say everything and, and uh you know and party around and so forth I, I was pretty subservient I was there to, to learn I, I didn't have any idea that you know, I, I knew it all coming in, but I wanted to be treated like a human being. And I didn't feel that he he liked to treat people. I mean, he was a a vicious, nasty guy, talented enough in his own way, but vicious and nasty. And it, it got to, in just a period of about a week or so, you know, it it was really depressing to me because I, if I got to spend the rest of my life working for this uh, verbal state masochist, you know, or a sadist rather not masochist. (laughs) And, uh, but you know, but I had no way to get away. I mean, what I was looking forward to was the fact that Julius Schwartz, who was his childhood friend, but a fellow editor on a little just a little lower plane with Justice League and Green Lantern and all that, um, you know, he had expressed an interest in my working for him. When I look back, I think that's kind of weird because these editors at DC then were so jealous that you know they didn't they didn't like their writers, their artists working for anybody else. But somehow or other, uh, Morton didn't seem to have any trouble working for me. Uh, for me working for Julie Schwartz uh, as opposed to just doing Superman stories. Uh, but, of course, I didn't stick around long enough to see how any of that would play out. Uh, but I intended to. I was going to try to last it out. But I wanted to beat, you know, Stan Lee because uh, I'd only exchanged a couple of letters with him. And he sent me an issue of Spider-Man I'd somehow missed on the stands once. But, you know, and he'd seen a few of my fanzine articles and this and that. But And I'd send him an issue or so of Alter Ego that I had done in the last year. Uh, and he'd seen Jerry Bells as before, but you know, we had no real connection the way say, Julie Schwartz and I did, but I wanted to take him out, you know, one of the, like meet him for a drink just cause I thought he was the best writer, much as I loved Gardner Fox and the other people. I, I thought he was doing the best writing in comics. I wasn't even thinking about editing cause you, know, I didn't, didn't know what an editor did exactly just yet. And, uh, but, and so he, I wrote him a letter, you know, and, and he called me at uh, my hotel. Uh, and I said, uh, you know, uh, and he says, he is, you know, he lives out in Long Island. He doesn't really socialize much, but you know, when I take this writer's test, you know, cause they've been looking for a writer and I, of course, I wasn't looking for a job. I had a job, but it's hard to resist. Somebody tells you, why don't you take a writing test? Just write a few pages that come by and pick up some stuff and then do this stuff and so forth. And, you know, it's kind of a challenge. A guy asks you to write that for some characters you like. And, uh, so I did it and, you know, without meeting Stan and, eventually uh, within a day or so you know they called me at dc and had me come over to meet stan and about uh you know uh stan was just you know very friendly he was on you know he was really you know hit me with all the stuff about how great marvel was of course i knew that or i wouldn't have wanted to meet him in the first place and uh but you know he would just talk about stuff and the only part of our conversation i really remember uh, was when I asked him, how did readers feel about the continued stories? That had been kind of a controversy in fandom because he'd started doing continuing stories more in the comics uh, mm. fairly recently. And uh, he said, oh, they hate him. He, says, <laughs> he just admitted to me that they hate them," But he said, you get most of our mails against it, but I'm going to keep on doing them because it's the only way I can write all these comics every month is if I sort of, you know, I'm starting from a cliffhanger or some kind of something for the next month. I don't have to start from scratch all the time thinking yeah. where we're going to go. So, And that's all I remember until he suddenly, you know, turned around, he's standing up. You know, i he had a big office, bigger than Weisinger's. It took up about two-thirds the space at Marvel. It was just his office. And he's looking out the window, the fourth or fifth floor, wherever it was, and he's looking down National Avenue, and he says, so what do we have to do to hire you away from National, which is what, you know, they call DC then. And uh, I said, I'll oh, just offer me a job. I said, I hate it there. You know,
2: yeah. and I
1: said they, they reduced the amount of money. I was supposed to get one hundred ten a week, and then they, when I got here, he said it was hundred. And uh, I said, "What happened to the other ten dollars?" And he said, "Well, I can't pay you more than I pay that idiot down the hall. The guy he was firing for me to replace. I guess he could have paid me more if I wasn't an idiot." But anyway, that was the explanation. So when Stan offered me the hundred ten, I said, "Okay," but I got to give him notice. You know, I said I won't leave him in the lurch. And he said, well, I want you to start right away, but, you know, you as soon as you can. It takes a week, two weeks, three weeks, okay. But as soon as you can. So I went there, and as soon as I told Mort that I had accepted a job, but that I would stick around as long as he needed me, he said, get out, you're a spy for Stan Lee. You know, he kicked <laughs> me out of the office, which said, so, do not throw me in the, in the tar patch, you know, or the, the briar patch. You know.
0: It sounds like it was the, the fact of writing stories with continuity, and that was a main appeal. All right, Jim.
2: Okay, so... Um, you graduated from Southeast Missouri State, nineteen sixty-one, with a degree in education, and then you mm-hmm. worked for a few years as a high school English teacher, right? Four, four years,
1: yeah. For four it's years, school, okay.
2: Four years, yeah. When when you took over Avengers with uh, issue 35 and you had done some other Marvel stuff, but that was where I really came into reading uh, you. I was a Avengers fan and I was like six, mm-hmm. six years old, seven years old at the time. And you had a run until issue one Oh four during which time mm-hmm. you created the vision black Knight, uh, And both of those I realized had precursors uh, and Ultron. Um, when you took over the Avengers, I th- thought that you brought a, a literary awareness to the comic that wasn't there before. That that uh, they grew up under your influence. And I want to specifically cite and ask you about Avengers fifty seven and fifty eight uh, because in in those you you have these uh, the masterful quote uh, Shelley's quote from Ozymandias. Well, not the quote, the whole the whole blame sonnet. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, and it's a beautiful page, one of my favorites in comics. It was just a happy accident. Yeah and Bushima was amazing in that. Um, you yes, have this striking language at the end of, of 58 with even an Android can cry that we, we all mm-hmm. remember as one of your favorite moments. Were you deliberately trying to raise the standard of comics in that? And were you acting as a teacher, bringing us some literary awareness? And how did all that work using it as under the Marvel method? Those would be my, my initial yeah, questions yeah. about that.
1: Yeah. Well, I didn't like teaching as such. But I think I have a, a certain kind of, you know, teaching mentality in the sense that I, I love the idea of people learning things, learning history, learning literature, you know, uh, you know, learning anything. I mean, obviously, you know, math and science, too, you know. Uh, I'd always liked that in comics, you know, the, some of the DC comics, Julian things would, would like to throw that in. Stan wasn't really big on doing this, uh, and he didn't really have the educational background, you know, he's in everything. Uh, but I didn't have a great education background. I mean, I just had this. B.S. in education degree, you know, with, with uh, you know, in English and social sciences and uh, history and then a big minor in useless education stuff. And uh, but I guess I, I, I think both on one level, I was just trying to get in there and just, you know, do more of the same. I liked what Stan was doing and I was wanting to do more of it and earn my keep and uh, have fun at the same time. On the other hand, because I was different from Stan because, you know, I, I had a, a college education, not that it was some great college education or whatever, but, you know, I had turned down a, a fellowship in uh, foreign relations at George Washington U to come, go to work in comics. Uh, you know, I wasn't, I was going to become a college professor or, or a diplomat or some damn thing, probably. So therefore, I would, you know, I just naturally brought what, we all bring the tools we have. When Denny O'Neill came in, you know, he had been a reporter, so he brought in this feeling of front page stuff, and I think that's why he was able to, you know, do such nice stuff, say, with the Green Lantern Green Arrow series. We all brought, you know, my friend Gary Friedrich was a little more hip and, you know, anti-war, and so he would do these uh, Sergeant Furies with more of an anti-war theme. You know, we all bring our background into the thing, and uh, I wasn't trying to raise comics a lot. I thought it was already already kind of going up. You know, Stan sort of was raising the level of comics in a certain way, simply by writing what he was doing and making the characters more believable, being human, to go along with all that Uh, wonderful Kirby Ditko Ramita art, and I was simply trying to, you know, to do my own version, but my own version would be a little more academic and a little more literary inclined, simply because that was my inclination, even though I certainly didn't have a heavy literary background.
2: Did you meet any resistance to that? Did Stan say, what the heck are you doing?
1: No, in fact, the first story I ever wrote of a superhero I deliberately put in like a big word or two, like phantasmagorical, which had never been in proper comics before. And he left that in without a word. And he said, "He hey, said, this is good. This is, you know, it's in the middle of a sentence. You can tell what it means. If you don't know what it means, they'll read right past it, as long as it didn't interflow with the, interfere with the flow of the story. Uh, no, Stan was open to that as long as it didn't get in the way of the story. You know, he, he thought it was great. You know, uh, I don't remember if he saw that use of the poem before it went out. He did. He did might not have paid too much attention to it but you know as you know as you probably read i never intended to use that i just wrote this ending or, or you know gave john the ending that picked the last page a bunch of paddles with the kid you know and he's kicking the you know uh kicking the head around like kick the can type of stuff and so forth you know And i just wanted to have this kind of different ending i hadn't thought about what i'd write there and then when i saw it i suddenly thought of uh, of that poem which of course I hadn't memorized. I just looked it up and then I actually wrote it out. I wrote it out in longhand long hand on the pages so that the tops of all the panels would be the same length. If you left it to a letter, you know, some of them would be taller or shorter than others because they would face it differently. And I just, so I took the whole design page in, but it was, it was not intended to be that way. Now, in the case of even an Android can cry, it's just the title in a way. But in that case, I actually had the title in mind from the beginning, because that's why it's lettered on, on unlike almost every other Marvel comic at that period, the, um, uh, uh, the title, even an Android can cry, is is you know written emblazoned in a stone wall on the cover. That's because John Buscema had that cover, that title from the beginning. But you know, it, it just you know you get inspired. The vision kind of inspired me because I thought it was kind of an interesting character, and I was having fun with it. And that just inspires you to, you know, to just push on and try to do better
0: things. Sounds like uh, Stan was um, encouraging influence. And now the, the third the third question, as far as bringing pulps into the comics, you know, you've read a lot of pulps, you have a lot of pulp history. And of course, I'm referring to Conan, uh, King Conan, Call, um, Red Sonia. You know, one one question I had about the, the 70s and the early 70s and the um, upsurge of this stuff is, is was the 70s like emotionally depressed and there was a fondness for this type of material like there was in the 1930s um what's your take on on the importation of the pulps and comics and why that appealed to readers at the time
1: yeah it's kind of hard to say you know i wasn't really a pulp reader myself because you know the pulps were kind of dying by the time that i was you know starting to read in the late 40s and things they were kind of minor i remember buying and reading a couple of issues of planet stories and so forth, but I wasn't a heavy pulp reader. I never saw the shadow pulp or any of that stuff, but as they were reprinting them in the sixties in paperback and different things. And as I would see, uh, I would see pulp magazines at the early comics conventions people had, and they were bringing so many of them out in paperback. I mean, that's obviously Conan Tarzan, you know, I mean, it's even non pulp stuff, Lord of the Rings, Doc Savage, the shadow, they were reprinting all this stuff. And it just occurred to me that bringing that into comics, you know, even that, even pulp stuff would kind of raise the level of what comics had been. So I, I sort of liked that idea. And, and of course, you know, Stan was very influenced by the pulps because he had actually read them as a kid more than I did. Hmm. And, uh, you know, he knew who the Avenger was. I would have known who that was even at that stage. And uh, so, you know, again, it's just, uh, I, I don't know. I, we were all all part of that same zeitgeist. And uh, just uh, you know, bring in whatever influences we had, the, the pulps in their world were very big then because they were because of all the paperback reprints. And I was just there to—I uh, was picking up a lot of that stuff, reading a little of it. I don't have a lot of uh, tolerance for reading old pulp literature. I've never been able to get all the way through a Shadow story, and I could bear—I read one Doc Savage, and I never wanted to read another one, Two of those, you know. I love the ideas of them. I just don't you know, but the actual prose, you know, I'm not going to want to read that stuff. But one, I didn't even finish the first Howard story for several years that I wrote. And then later on, I discovered, well, I was wrong on that one. <laughs> you know, he was, uh, that, that there were two of them that were really good in their own ways. Like that. Uh, Edgar Rice Bros with his imagination about the actual prose uh, in the early days. And then Robert E. Howard, who in his own way was fantastic writer. The others were well, written well, you know, and so forth, but it wasn't the kind of stuff I really wanted to read. Uh, but yeah. I thought that bringing that in, that was, we were trying to expand. I felt like we should expand from the superheroes. You can't just keep doing more and more superheroes. They're all the same. So you bring in, you know, you raise level a little bit with, you know, trying to get Tarzan. It took a few years, but we did get it. Eventually we, we went after, we got lucky in being able to get Conan, which we didn't think we could get. We, we got totally shot down on Lord of the Rings. Tolkien didn't want to know, or his agents. They didn't want to know from comic books. You know yeah. uh, what I was trying to do adaptations of the uh, the uh, trying to uh, deal with uh, Arthur C. Clarke. You know, trying to get the rights to the story, and was uh, 2001 was based the Monolith. Uh, uh, the uh, the very friendly agent says, "Listen, I have to say, we'll have to forget about this. I've never Arthur Clarke has never yelled at me before you know but what i suggested having one of his stories adapted to a comic book you know because some of these guys felt you know they they thought comics you know, were the enemy because they had taken a lot of readers away from the pulp in science fiction magazine and he said arthur c clark wanted to hear nothing of that and he got really mad you know most of them were friendly yeah. when i tried to do well would i wanted to adapt the it story by Theodore sturgeon i called him up and Took me 20 minutes to raise the nerve to be able to call it. You know, sitting by the phone, this famous writer, even though I hadn't read that much stuff by him, but I loved that one story and I knew he was a good writer. And by the time the conversation was over, I had not only agreed to, you know, to do the story, but had agreed to getting this check sent right away because he needed it for an alimony check. Huh.
0: (laughs) So now, why do you think um, Conan the Barbarian um, was uh, so popular in comparison? with the other pulp-related comics of that decade? What, what, what appealed to everybody?
1: Well, I think everything about it from uh, the, the character himself, this kind of, you know, almost archetypal barbarian that you could read almost anything to. You all, almost didn't know what he was thinking, but, you know, you, you, you knew it was going to be, end up on the right side, whatever his voters were, he would be on the right. And this colorful world that Howard created, the that yanked everything out of the ancient
2: world, the medieval
1: world, any kind of, pre-gun power you could mix it all together you know into one world you you changed countries you were changing centuries really you know <laughs> you know and uh, just just that anything could happen you had piracy in a world that didn't look like it was designed for piracy you know uh you had two or three levels of piracy a world like that shouldn't have really been able to support that many pirates but it did
2: <laughs> and, uh, a minute ago, I discussed your, your role as a writer in terms of as a teacher and, and literary awareness. I want to talk to you about the influence of pop culture on what you were writing, of, of contemporary thought, of social topics. You mentioned Denny O'Neill, but you were doing some of that as, as well at the same time. Uh, specifically, I want to cite uh, two Hulk stories. I said, nobody ever cites Hulk stories. Go ahead. (laughs) I'm going to. Uh, They shoot Hulks, don't they, in issue 142, which was was fairly controversial at the time in some ways. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and then I also, the the letters page from, I think it was 147, which also contained one of my very favorite Hulk stories of all time, Heaven is a Very Small Place. So I want to talk about, I want to talk about yeah. those for a minute. It, it okay. seems obvious that the, the, they shoot Hulk story was inspired by Tom Wolfe's uh, radical chic evenings uh, right. where, where Leonard Bernstein, he's telling a story of Leonard Bernstein and his wife hosting a fundraising party for the black Panthers. Right. Um, and you turn the black Panthers basically into the Hulk and have these characters, Reggie and Malisha Parrington. Um, and it's, it's pretty biting uh, satire and it's, it's, it's very much, obviously it owes a lot to Tom Wolfe. And my question would, but you also cite Truman Capote, you cite Norman Baylor in the story. You're bringing in a lot of contemporary uh, writers in this. Uh, and at the same time, you're bringing in commentary on feminism and, and women's liberation movement and all of that. Mm-hmm. So it's both pop culture and its yeah. relevancy. Um, can you talk about that issue a little bit And what you were trying to do
1: Yeah, yeah it's, it's weird originally of course I was just going to do a story that uh, You know use some of the wolf stuff And then suddenly when the radical sheep kind of Occurred to me because I really Because I just love that piece I mean it it, I, it wasn't that I, I didn't think Certainly I mean you know that's why I didn't Change to the hawk It wasn't that I didn't think of course That uh, uh, you know that the, the black Cause or the racial justice cause Was any kind of uh, you know, worthwhile thing. I just thought the way that these guys approached it, Lenny Bernstein and his friends, and, you know, I have a great admiration for Bernstein as a musician, West Side Story, if nothing else, you know. And yet, I just thought it was just crazy. These people were just nuts. They didn't know what they were doing. They're playing with fire. They, they're just doing it on such a shallow, casual level. And they were stupid enough to invite Tom Wolf to come by and take a look. What do they think he's going to write? You know, they, He's going to write how sweet and smart they were? So I love this piece. And then it occurred to me that, you know, if you could do it for the Black Panthers, let's just, you know, we're taking it out. I don't want to have a racial thing. It was, it was just make, the, uh, make it about the Hulk. You know, that becomes the symbolism of the whole thing. And then I just I just kind of let it go from there. And I was lucky. Herb did a nice job. And then we had John Severin uh, inking it. And, of course, he could make anything look real. Tom Wolfe gave us permission to even use him as a character in there so I didn't have to disguise anything uh and uh so as a result you know it just became a weird offbeat issue and maybe we had a complaint or two about it mostly people just liked it some of those people who did that probably never heard of tom wolf they never read the radical chic wouldn't have known it you know didn't know who, what any of that stuff was but i felt the whole thing is as stan always said if it makes a good story and it makes a good hulk story there's a lot of ways to do a good hulk story you know peter david had his version and you know, this person's had that version and so forth. My particular version was doing stuff like the Golem stories and, you know, just doing stuff kind of different because I wasn't very interested in the Hulk. I mean, I like—I thought it was a fine character, but I preferred the thing. And I, you know, and I always wrote the Hulk twice. Maybe not that issue, but generally wrote it twice as fast as anything else. And it sold better than almost anything I did. They upped the print run twice while Herb and I were doing it. It had been selling well under Stan and Herb before, but it kept selling better. Uh, but eventually, you know, I got out because I really didn't have any interest in writing that book. He's a limited character. He was just stomping around. And, you know, I was always ready to leave. I just used his excuse to bring in my version of the heap and to do radical chic. And then that other little story, Chris, that was just an accident because we had, uh, the, the heaven is a very small place. And, uh, we, you know, we had that month or so where we had the giant-sized books, right? With the 30-something page stories.
2: And then Goodman
1: decided not to do that. So all of a sudden, we had to cut the stories in pieces, and I suddenly had, you know, all the comics had, Fantastic Four had, Thor had, Conan had. They all had this little space where we suddenly had to cut the books up, and we had maybe a space for six, seven, eight pages we had to fill. So, I so I thought, well, I don't know, you know, Herbert, Herbert, and I would just sit around talking over, and uh, probably my idea in general. But then Herbert, and I would just talk it over, you know, one of the Hulk went someplace, but it's all like it's a mirage, but to him it's real, and we could see how he would try to relate to people, but it would be. Ultimately frustrating to him because, you know, he would never quite realize what was going on, but it wasn't really real. It was just some kind of mirage or something. And that, Can I know.
2: ask you? It, it had a, a, a Rod Serling Twilight Zone feel to me, and mm-hmm. and there is a similar episode of Twilight Zone uh, next stop, Willoughby.
1: I don't remember. I saw a few Twilight Zones. I don't remember them. I certainly don't have any knowledge of that particular episode, but I could have seen it, I suppose.
0: One thing I noticed about that um, Hulk issue is it was inked by John Severin, which is awesome because it had kind of like a satire cracked kind of feel to it, which I Mm -hmm. thought was uh, made it a real genius little layer to add to the issue and something that's kind of in the same flavor. I was going through like the old Rolling Stone. I think it came out in like 1970 and the Marvel bullpen was interviewed and you were in there.
1: Oh, yeah. Robin Green. Yeah. Robin Green's article there. Yeah. I was just reading her book. Oh, yeah,
0: and because she had a book and she worked with Rolling Stone after she worked with uh, you guys uh, for for a little while. Yeah. And there was an interesting quote, which I feel like relates to the Tom Wolf, but it also relates to something else, which I'm going to get to. You said that they do try sometimes to mix politics with superheroes and get a little more far out than apple pie. But after all, social equality and peace are the modern form of motherhood and apple pie. Everybody's in favor of peace and women's lib, at least up to a certain point. I used to be liberal, but the world has moved to the left. I think I'd rather stick with fantasy. And I thought that was an interesting line, and it seemed kind of similar to the Tom Wolfe um, concept of your comic.
1: Well, it might not be 100%. I don't know if she had it all down on tape, but it's, but it's probably pretty accurate. Yeah, you know, Stan and I always tried to walk a kind of middle of the road because, you know, we didn't really want to offend anybody, but, uh, you know, I mean, unless it was a total bigot, and, you know. So yeah. uh, we didn't really, you know, but... Uh, and we didn't want to look like we're trying to come down and say, you know, we've got all the answers or this side is all right. I think one of the stories I was always the proudest. of was, what was it? The second sons of the serpent when I did one. And I had, it had two leaders and one was white and one was black. And I, I did that on purpose symbolically because I wasn't going to say all black people, evil. Certainly I'm not going to say all white people are evil. It's ridiculous. Right. So I made it. I made one of each, uh, being there. And I remember one of the things that, uh, that I said that story, which is that that a cause can be right even if a leader or two is wrong. And I think, you know, that's what you have to right. remember because nobody's perfect. And all the people that are pretending they're perfect are no more perfect than anybody else.
0: Well, if one, do you still feel like that? That the world's moved more to the left? Yeah, yeah, I suppose. And then the second thing also is, um, as far as uh, sticking with fantasy, so Tom Fagan and the Rutland Parade and hanging out mm-hmm. at his house, and, and that was like their early cosplay, you know, costume parties, uh, in super, yeah. um, t- the, was that part of like just enjoying the fantasy of the characters and tell us about what a night at Tom Fagan's house was like.
1: It, it was sort of like in the comics, except without the real superheroes.
0: No, it was just, uh,
1: it started out and you know, 65 was only the second comic convention ever really in New York and, and, and so forth. Uh, and I happened to be there cause I had just started work. And so Tom Fagan was there and he invited me and uh, the guy I was staying with David Kaler, who had just started, I'd helped get a job writing, you know, turned out to Captain Adam and things at Charlton. And they invited us up. So we took our Plastic Man and Doctor Strange costumes and went up and rode on the float with him as Batman and so forth and had a good time. And over the next few years three, four, five years just more and more comics people heard about it and started going up until we'd have a whole bus once, I think, or something. And, uh, you know, and after a few years, it kind of died down for various reasons, you know, but we uh, had five, six years of, of of increasing numbers of people going up. But all it really was, is it was just uh, everybody kind of hanging out. We were out of the city for a change. It was a little different. A lot of these people were city people, never got out of the city. I mean, I'm a small town boy, but these were people that, you know, they spent all their lives practically in Manhattan and Queens and the Bronx you know, or something. And suddenly they're out here and walking around. It's, you know, it's a smaller city and they're walking around in the countryside and, you know, they're. They they had the dam there and all kinds of stuff and there are the woods and the mountains and so forth and you but but you know I just remember freezing my fingers off by myself out there trying to do something or other with a float one year and uh, then we'd all hop on and we'd have our costumes if we brought them and you know and then we'd go to a party at uh, because Tom was ba- was babysitting for several years this uh, house that uh, big house it was a great party house and uh, that was kind of nice you know and. I don't know. I just have, I don't have a lot of, a lot of memories from it, except that it was just a good time. And, you know, we always, uh, enjoyed ourselves. And, it, it, you know, I don't exactly know why it, it came to an end. I know that I was up there through at least about, uh, 72, if not else, because I remember, you know, I rented a car, drove there and I came home with, uh, in the rain with my, I think it was with Jerry and Carl before they were married as the Conways. And, uh, Came home and uh, came in the uh, we came into our apartment and that's when uh, my, my my wife said she was uh, you know she wanted to leave me for a while you know so that's and I don't remember anything much more about the Rutland thing after that you know
0: <laughs> it seemed like in the early seventies like 1970 you were really growing as a writer you were um, in the publishing business basically in New York and you were commenting on things like Tom Wolfe and the modern social uh, things that were going on at the time, you were uh, had interaction with Douglas Kinney. You had an appearance in National Lampoon. Yeah. It seems like a really fertile period for you. Yeah, well, it was. You know, this, it's the late 60s, the early 70s, which
1: is really the late 60s, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. And it was just interesting. I mean, the Lampoon happened to be in our, you know, the same building as we were, and so a lot of I never uh, tried to get real work there, but a lot of the artists, it was easy for them to get, you know, work there. And you had Neil Adams and a lot of others doing work. That was kind of nice. It was you know, I'd see, you know, suddenly look at heaven. there's John and Yoko walking into the building right ahead of us. Somebody pointed it out to, to me, you know, and everything five feet away from me. And, uh, you know, then appearing in the, uh, nude in the, uh, uh, in the, in the, uh, uh, national lampoon and so forth. And, you know, that was, it was just, it was just, it was a different, you know, different time. It was pre-AIDS and pre-this and pre-that. It was post-structural revolution. We were all in there in between. And, you know, hey, even Stan posed in the nude at one time, right? With just a little book in That's front true. of him. Or yep. Maybe it was a big yep. book there. I don't know. But anyway, uh, you know, it's just, uh, you know, we were just reacting. That, again, it's that zeitgeist, that particular world. That's the way the world was then. I mean, there were a lot of ferments that were very serious things. You know, you had. Uh, certainly the civil rights thing and uh, the anti-war movement, things like that.
2: My last question, we've talked about sure. uh, literary awareness and we talked about um, the influence of Tom Wolfe as as a literary journalist and how that inspired you to, to be somewhat of a commentator on, on some things. Uh, my last question is, I wanna go back to your first job though, as a history teacher.
1: I didn't teach history then. I had a history major, but I ended up teaching English.
2: Ah, well that makes sense too. Um, but you, with with The Invaders and then All-Star Squadron, it seemed mm-hmm. like you were teaching readers both world history and comics history simultaneously. Um, and that became a, a big aspect of your career, starting really with Avengers 97 and Godhood's End, um, and then in 1971, and then Giant Size Invaders, really taking it to another level. Uh, and the 21 issues of invaders but what i primarily want to talk about is in relation to all this is your experience doing the invaders annual number one and if you could tell us what that was and uh how it came to be and who you were working with uh robins and rico and alliance
1: that was a very special issue to me because it became the one as it turned out only invaders annual and i and of course uh, naturally the first thing i thought of if i've got all these extra pages i'm going to as usual turn it into the justice society of america which i turned everything into if i could um you know and i had done that with the first avengers annual i wrote you know which was treated like that so in this case i decided well you know i was going to do this thing just like uh, the old all-star comics when i was reading it where i'd have the beginning and ending with the characters together and then i would have the three different heroes at least luckily it was only three main heroes uh each of them would have his own chapter and it would be uh, drawn by somebody who had uh drawn the comic in the past you know if possible i mean they weren't all around but i i couldn't get everybody i wanted you know i don't think i uh, I guess Bill, Bill Everett was already dead. So, uh, so I, t- I got went to Lee Elias who hated the submariner. He always said that, but I got him to draw the pencil, at least the submariner chapter. That was sort of interesting just to have him do it. I liked his work on the flash and so forth. Uh, and, um, I had Don Rico had become a friend. Don had been, you know, a, a writer and artist at the time, And he had done a little Captain America back in the forties. And we were friends, you know, he and, uh, Sergio Aragonés and Mark Evanier. a little later would, uh, would co-found that CAPS organization out in LA of comic book people. And, I, and Don was really a, a very nice, urbane, uh, great guy and so forth. So I thought it'd be nice to have him draw Captain America. But the real thing was getting the human torch, you know. Uh, I mean, I guess I could have got Dick Ayers who had done it in the 50s because he was around. But I wanted to get somebody from the 40s. So I went to Carl Burgess, whom I never met. I never met Carl Burgess, unfortunately. But I talked to him on the phone. And he agreed to do it. And uh, then he reneged because, you know, he had got to really, you know, hate, not me or Marvel, but more like Stan. He felt, I don't know, somehow, it was really Martin Goodman who was his real enemy because, you know, he's the one that took the human torch from him, not Stan. But he didn't like Marvel. and So I guess when he really pushed, came to shove, he just couldn't bring himself to do it or something. So he very politely called up and begged off on the phone. And so I I was really kind of depressed. I had no 1940s person to do uh, The Torch. And for some, and at the, but in the meantime, I had contacted Alex Schomburg because he had been the guy who had drawn all those great uh, 1940s World War II uh, Marvel mystery covers and, and other Marvel covers with, uh, with great battles and five million characters and everything's labeled. And I thought that was, and he was doing the cover. So I said, hey, you know, I knew he had done a few comics. Strangely enough, I don't know if he ever did interior stories for Timely, but he did a lot for Standard.
2: Yep. Right, know, he did some he, westerns you know. and some
1: other stuff. Yeah, yeah. but not, yeah, he didn't do that much for, and he never did the superhero stories for Marvel. But I said, him, you know, listen, would you like to do a five-six page thing with a Human Torch? And it was weird because we we're working Marvel style, you know, and everything, which he certainly had never done. You know, just giving him the plot, and then I'd write the dialogue later. He said, yeah, it might be fun, and he did a nice job. and And I have probably the one of the only Marvel stories, you know, with a superhero ever drawn by uh, Alex Schomburg. So. I still miss the fact that I didn't get to work with Carl Burgess, but I got to work mm-hmm. with Alex Schomburg, so so it was kind of nice. It was kind of a, a fun story, and of course Frank Robbins could tie it all together, and he because he really knew that World War II stuff, and with all his weird qualities that uh, he was, uh, you know, a magnificent artist too. So it's a it's a very special book to be.
2: And it goes back not just to your love of Golden Age, but also to your early uh, career, too, because it brings in and ties in with that Avengers issue with the Squadron uh, Sinister, which I had been waiting for forever for that. So for me, it was a very special book as well. I I didn't know
1: I was because it never occurred to me that I'd write the story behind why Captain America is... Using the you know the, the old shield at the time, of course, it was just to differentiate him from the regular Captain America, and uh, you know, and and why the Submariner was wearing this and so forth. But uh, once I had done those stories, I thought, well, you know, uh, I'll do it. But then I have, if I do that, I have to explain why is Captain America using the wrong shield, and why is this, and why is that? Why is Submariner got these old trunks on that he actually wore in the comics when we got into the scaly stuff that Bill didn't introduce until the fifties and uh, so that just became part of the fun just the same way was with, with with the co- retroactive continuity in all-star squadron you find the problem and mer- merely finding the problem makes you think that you're going to have fun finding a solution you know and everything goes if you just it's if you start off with a problem it gives you something to kind of you know butt up against and you know uh, as opposed to just writing a story you're having to solve a particular problem and, and tell a good story at the same time and If somebody didn't like what I was doing uh, because they didn't like the idea of retroactive continuity, well, I just have to get by without those people. And, you know, for the most part, I did. Not long enough, but, you know, uh, but still 60, 70 issues of All-Star Squadron before crisis uh, ruined it all. And, uh, you know, a number of issues, invaders. I should have written all the invaders myself. Uh, Not that Don others didn't do it a good job, but I should have written all that. And I, you know, I think I could have guided it because then it would have been more a personal statement, but, you know, I was busy living, you know, my life with, uh, you know, dating and marriages and moving from one coast to the other and different things, you know, and, you know, and.
2: I just wanted to say, um, because my time's running out. I, I just wanted to say that when people ask me who my favorite Marvel people are, I always say three, and they're, they're Hawkeye, The Vision, and Captain America. All three of those, mm. it's because of the stamp that you put on those characters. And I just want to say, as a seven-year-old that was reading that when you were writing it...
1: Did I, I put a stamp on
2: Hawkeye? I don't know. <laughs> for, well, I, I mean, should say Clint Barton more than just saying Hawkeye. Oh,
1: wow, yeah, Clint Barton. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I get that, yeah, because he didn't have a life before that. Uh, right, yeah, I guess. right. That's, yeah.
2: that's exactly right. So for me... I got to say, you were always the man for me.
1: Oh well, I was the boy, really. Stan was the man, you know, and everything. <laughs> well, thank goodness you kept the game flu
2: employed during that period, then you know, what,
1: you <laughs> know, and everything. So I'm very happy. Now they're now, of course, they're uh, keeping me happily uh, quasi employed because they keep paying me for reprinting this stuff, you know. It's it,
2: <laughs> and uh, nice. you
1: know, you go. I like, I you know, I mean, it's not like a huge money, but it, it enables me to to live nicely and not have to get by on social security. They're paying all the stuff that as I write a little thing, I don't have to, the, you know, at this stage, I don't have to do anything. I don't want to do, you know, nobody can, uh, you know, heart, harm me or damage my reputation because I don't care. You know, if they, <laughs> they stop doing conventions, if they stop doing, paying me to come to conventions, I just won't go and I'll live quite happily. If they have conventions, I'll go and I'll do
0: that quite happily, you know? And, uh, and something I'd throw out there, um, as we, uh, as we wrap up is that. Um, you know, Julia Schwartz is often credited as the guy that brought a lot of science fiction and a lot of uh, critical um, thinking and thought to a lot of those Silver Age characters. And I would mm-hmm. say that the person at Marvel that was really putting that sci-fi stuff and expanding mm-hmm. the Marvel Universe uh, on a science fiction mm-hmm. level with things like the kree Scroll mm-hmm. War, that was you, Roy. So thanks so much.
1: Mm-hmm. Julie
0: was I, I will say that
1: Julie was an influence. On me, even when I was at Marvel, because I still liked that stuff. I mean, you know, I realized it was at a more juvenile level of Stan stuff, but I still liked it. You know, I could still—I re- just got into a little one set, and I could still read The Flash and Hawkman, even though it wasn't, you know, written on the same plane that you know the little slightly more adult plane that uh, some of the Marvel stuff was. But but I was very influenced by Julie and very impressed, and I liked the fact that he did this. And Stan didn't like, you know, parallel world stuff, you know. But I found ways to bring it in with what if and different things uh he would never have been in favor of doing a world a comic set all in world war Two. he just used that for a few captain america stories because he didn't know what else to do with him but to me you know that was the way to do it why should all stories be said in one or two eras like the west and you know and uh you know and the and the far future and the present why not have a world war Two? I, I would have loved to have done a world war one comic but i never quite got the chance you know yeah but world war two for some reason was especially interesting even though i don't remember it i I was just always fascinated by World War II and the home front stuff especially. And people would ask me, why are you so interested in the, the World War II? I said, well, it's one of the few times that humanity ever got together to do anything well. I mean, the whole world just about, unlike World War, they were practically all involved in everything. And it, it was an awful, terrible thing. And it's not like I seriously would want to repeat anything like it. But the fact remains, you have, to, you have to admire the fact that the whole damn planet just about was involved. Anywhere you went, it was at least a background thing, you know. Yeah. Even if you were in a neutral country or you were in Africa or whatever, there was always something going on, you know, a la Casablanca or something. And that just, you know, fascinated me. And I feel that, you know, World War II is like the Roman Empire or the Civil War or something. You know, just there are an infinite number of possibilities. There's something I'd love to do, a Civil War superhero story, you know. There you go.
0: You might do a better version than the one that Marvel actually did. Did they do one? Yeah, at some point, Yeah.
1: Stan, I never read the stories that much. I you know, I like the movie they made out of it. Uh, I but Stan I remember Stan must have he thought that was what I don't know if he was talking about the individual story or just the concept, but I remember him talking to him on the phone once and he said that he thought that Civil War idea was one of the best that he'd seen in, you know, comics and everything. But you know, he's not necessarily talking about so much the actual stories as the, the concept. But of course that came out of, you know, stuff that he had done too. I mean, you know, the scenes of all that stuff are all set back in what Stan did with Jack and Steve and so forth, you know, you could always trace anything that they do do now or that I did then. It, it's all kind of traceable back. It all kind of flows from the the this fountain that was unleashed when Stan and Jack and, to a lesser extent, Ditko, you know, got together and suddenly became this wonderful triumvirate, creating a whole universe. And, you know, uh, I mean, Stan and Jack in particular were just the absolutely, you know, irreplaceable, essential parts of that neither of them could have really you know done it without the other although they didn't do it at the time
0: yeah yeah there's definitely a magic that happened in the 60s in new york yeah. uh, at that building
1: well in the mccartney or you know whatever you know something two two people or three people get together and all of a sudden something comes out that's much better than any one of them you know would have done apart. you know uh, and everything and i i was lucky enough to come along and you know, I'll be a junior partner in that. and I could carry it forward a little bit. Uh, you know, I've gotten the same league with, uh, in terms of importance by any standard with uh, guys like that and a number of others. But at the same time, you know, I can contribute my own little bit, uh, you know, trying more just to have fun and make a living and maybe contribute a little because I always love the, uh, the comics medium, obviously, even if I don't read comics now that much, except the old one. Uh, you know, I just I love the idea of comics. I love the medium and the storytelling. And it's sort it's of been nice to see the world catch up with us a little bit, you know, even if they have to movies and TV shows to do it, uh, to, to, to uh, you know, the world kind of has to admit now, you know, maybe there is something to, to some of this stuff, you know, the critics hate it. They, they hate the superhero movies because they hate having to take the stuff seriously. They can't ignore it.
0: Yeah, that's true. They can't ignore it at this point. Before we, uh, before we close out, can you tell us about, um, if you can, uh, in and and meeting Kirby and meeting Ditko when you joined in the 60s, uh, at Marvel, like interacting with them, uh, what was your first impression of both of them?
1: The funny thing is, I don't remember, you know, I don't remember the event of meeting either of them. I remember meeting the day I met John Romita, uh-huh. I remember the day I met Bill Everett, and of course, Stan you know, and whatever, but I don't remember specifically meeting, a just would drop by and so forth, I was introduced to him in passing, and by that time I was, you know, I already knew that he and Stan weren't speaking, so I didn't know what to say to him I could just kind of be quiet, and Jack came in, it was just very friendly. but I don't remember the first time I ever did I just I just remember Jack was an interesting guy I just, I'll say one little thing, one, one lunch yeah, I was out with, I don't, Stan wasn't there because he might not have said it was Stan with everybody but uh, Romita, Saul Brodsky, myself maybe Stan Goldberg five, six of us would go to a, a trash Would have had good ice cream. We'd just, you know, have lunch. And uh, I was the junior partner. I was the youngest guy there. So, I'm, you know, you know I, I would just try to listen to what they said and uh, learn some stuff. But I remember somebody, me or somebody asking,
2: uh, what's
1: going to be the next trend, Jack? This is about 1966, 67, you know, before he moved out. West. And uh, Dan says, Jack says, you know, I don't know any better than anybody else. He says, you know, but I said, I'll tell you one thing. When there's the next trend, it's not going to be me. It's not going to come from me. And it's not going to come from Stanley. And it's not going to come from these guys. DC, see, it's going to come from two guys in a garage somewhere. And I thought of that when I thought of things like the Teenage Ninja Turtles and things where some just, you know, it's just the inspiration of one or two people getting together and, and doing something. It doesn't have to, it won't necessarily come from the big companies. It'll just the same way that Siegel and Schuster created Superman, you know, before they were with a company, you know, and. And uh, I, I just thought, you know, Jack, Jack was an interesting guy. He had a an unsophisticated mind in some way, but he was such a genius in his own way that, uh, you know, he couldn't help, anytime he said anything, you know, there's, you know, even if it was nuts in a ways, there was bound to be something interesting in it. I, I, I found him kind of fascinating, although I never, you know, knew him that well. While Stan, of course, was more down to earth, but was, uh, you know, his whole thing was, you know, just running the company and trying to promote Marvel and, the creativity part to, to Jack, the creativity was the important thing, and Stan was very creative and, and so forth. But to 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 Stan, the creativity was the means to the end. To, you know, to because his job was to run the company and make money for the company, and of course maybe side promote the company and promote himself along with it. That was his, That wasn't necessarily what Mark did wanted want to do. That's what Stan wanted to do. Uh, but you know, they were both different, but they were both promoting the comics in their, in their own way. And I think comics sort of needed both. They needed the creativity and they needed something different from creativity. You know, I mean, I can't ever see Jack Kirby ever starting anything like Marvel Comics with the continuity and the this and the that. I can't see him doing that, even if he was the editor, you know. Uh, and anyway. on the other hand, uh, maybe he could have done it after Marvel, but certainly not before. On the other hand, Stan would never have been able to create Marvel and get it going if he had Jack Kirby or somebody else, very much like him because Stan wasn't going to come up with all these ideas totally by himself. He would be dependent on a, a, a really good artist. And uh, of course in Jack, he had the best, you know, and then he got lucky with Ditko who nobody ever heard of or cared anything about. And it turned out to be one of the two or three most important superhero artists of all time. That DC probably wouldn't have hired on a bet at that time.
0: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, because they were kind of focused on that smooth Dan Barry ink line, and they didn't really. Yeah,
1: he would, he, would, he would have been considered just a mediocre artist to them. You know, I was a fan of Ditko since he was doing Captain Adam the first time in the late 50s, you know, a couple of years earlier. And I thought this guy's really pretty good, you know. The, so as soon as he started drawing Spider Man, I recognized who he was just as I knew who Kirby was. I'd know who Kirby, or at least Simon and Kirby, I'd known that was a symbol for good quality in artwork since I was five or six years old back in. Forty six, forty
2: seven. Yeah, those were great books. Boy Commandos and News, Newsboy Legion. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah I, yeah. I was thinking, of course, by that time they really weren't doing that much anymore, but they were sort of people were following them. I, uh, I think I became aware of them more uh, from like things like Stuntman and
0: so forth. Oh yeah, that's classic too.
1: It was beautiful stuff, you know, just just wonderful stuff. I didn't know who Simon was or who Kirby was and who did what you know and once in a while simon could pull off a thing that was just like kirby but uh you know anyway so so you there you have it i just tried to you know be the the, the sixth wheel on the thing that kirby and simon did so anyway we got to go
0: thanks again roy uh this has been another uh, fun episode of the comic book Histories podcast with alex grant and jim thompson we had a really fantastic guest today mr roy thomas roy the boy and the uh, second editor in chief of Marvel, of the Marvel age after Stan Lee, his hair apparent culturally and uh, comic writing wise. And he took that into his own legacy in comics. Roy, thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Thanks, Roy. Sure.